Hi everyone and welcome back to the Purposeful Provision podcast. My name is James and I run Nursery Nook. Thanks for joining me. We're still within the realm of thinking about outdoors and we're following our 12-week outdoor challenge and this week we are thinking about risky play. Now first things first, if you are in a position where you are part of a team or you have a manager above you, it's very important that you have a shared approach to risk. So any of the things that I cover in this podcast this week, it needs to be discussed fully with the people around you and a shared approach needs to be decided upon. The reason for that is if you have different members of staff with different tolerances around risk, children will begin to pick up on which staff members will allow certain kinds of play and then hide that kind of play when other staff members come out into the space. We see if quite a few times in lots of different places and the major issue here is obviously children will then do something that can be quite dangerous out of sight of a member of staff and obviously that's when it leads to um, more serious issues really. So I'm going to use Ellen Sanceta's eight different kinds of risky player behaviours as a basis for this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about her work, I do suggest you look her up. She's got quite a few research papers out there as well as a website, and she does a lot of work around Scandinavia. When I first encountered Ellen Sanceta, it was quite a few years ago now, before the pandemic first struck, and she had six different kinds of risky player behaviours. And I found it really interesting because whilst I was reading about these different risky play behaviours, I was recognising how many of my children engage in these to such a high level. Things I never really thought about before. So for example, you know, using dangerous tools, obviously you think, oh, it's a little bit risky, but actually some children would use tools that you wouldn't consider risky, but that would be risky to them. When the pandemic hit, I discovered that she had included two new kinds of play behaviours. Um, through some research that she did with her colleague and I got very excited. It was a very different pandemic um, for me in my downtime. I spent an awful lot of time doing lots of research and reading. Um, So I'm going to go through all eight different kinds of risky player behaviours. If you're part of the network, you will have seen the video where I talk about these individually. But this podcast is about going into them in a little bit more depth, but also thinking about how they will look different for different children at different ages and stages of their lives. So the first one is at great heights. So that could be something like climbing a tree or climbing a climbing frame or some kind of structure, some kind of static structure that you've created in your provision area or perhaps you access in a park or a shared space. For our youngest of children, a great height could be climbing on top of a wooden brick or block or pulling themselves up against a chair. It could be simply being at a different place that they've not been to before. So our babies pulling themselves up. Amazing. That is a great height to them. For our preschoolers, our toddlers, it's most likely going to be climbing some kind of structure. For children, as they get older, they need to be able to engage in creating their own limits for this. And so they'll most likely start to use lots of large scale equipment to create some kind of loose parts play artifact that they climb up and down and they can begin to push their own limits. Everyone has a different limit on what is considered to be risky play. So you might have some three-year-olds who might consider five foot high to be their limit, whereas you might have some five-year-olds who will gladly climb to the very top of a building and jump off. There are certain rules in different parts of the world about certain safe limits for climbing, such as I think in Australia it's 1.2 metres up a tree. Um, 
I'm filming this in the UK, specifically in England, and we don't have any rules like that, but it is still worth considering if there are some things as part of your organisation, your school, your trust, or your local authority. Number two is travelling at great speeds. That is riding a bike or riding some kind of device or resource where you're able to move faster than you would normally. So maybe being on a swing or a roundabout at a playground and feeling that exhilaration on your face and in your hair. Now, I will often stick my head out of a window when it's a very long journey just to kind of wake myself up a little bit. Not my whole head, of course, but I'll open the window just to get a blast on the top of my hair. But it's still still the same sort of concept, this idea of um, feeling some kind of response from um, what we choose to do, like a cause and effect relationship. For our youngest of children, it could be sliding down a very small slide, or it could be perhaps bouncing up and down um, on a knee of an adult. For children as they get a bit older, it could be something like sliding a longer or a bigger slide, riding a bike or a bicycle, swings, seesaws, and things like that. And as they get even older still, it could be something like being able to ride some kind of motorised vehicle. Number three is dangerous tools. And when I first read about her research, I was thinking about things like woodworking tools, which is more often than not the thing that people think about when they think of dangerous tools for nursery age children. But it doesn't necessarily have to be um, a woodworking tool. I would agree for preschoolers, that's kind of the realm that we're thinking about. But if we take a step backwards towards toddlers, it's likely going to be something like a butter knife or maybe even a, a semi-sharp knife that they could cut, say like a banana with. For younger children still, it could be something like a piece of sandpaper in a discovery basket or a prickly pine cone or a prickly shell. Something that's not going to do any actual damage to the child, but when they feel it, they get some kind of quite intense sensory feedback from it. And of course, that will be an adult-led activity. So you wouldn't make them interact with it, but if they chose to, you'd be there to support them and to give them some kind of safety tips. It could also be interacting with some books such as the That's Not My Range, where children might feel something a bit rough and they don't expect it. And then again, as children get even older still, it could be things like a chainsaw. Now, I'm not talking about giving your five-year-olds a chainsaw here. I'm talking about much older children. So I like to use the example of during the pandemic, um, my brother bought himself a chainsaw and it was outside of his realm. It's not something he'd used before. And so we were very careful, we talked it through, and it was very important that he spent some time turning the chainsaw on and turning it off again in order to build up his tolerance to this risky tool. But there are some people in our lives, people the same age or even younger than us, who've used chainsaws before. So it's not necessarily about our age, it's about our developmental understanding, our tolerance towards this kind of risk. We have to have a go and understand what the dangers could be and learn that we can be safe with something before we feel comfortable engaging in it freely. Number four is near dangerous elements. Those are things like your campfires, your cliff edges, your um, seashores, the things that you would tend to associate with beach or forest schools, but you might have some elements in your provision already. So you might have some um, not necessarily cliff edges, but you might have, say, like a slope or a wall that comes to a point and the children can jump a few foot down. And to very young children, those might seem like quite scary things. And to older children who've developed a sense of um, risk, they have a, an understanding about what's safe here, they might just jump down freely. Number five is perhaps the most difficult, and that's rough and tumble. I personally find this one very difficult 
because I'm never quite certain if a child realistically should be engaging in um, play fighting in, a, in an educational setting. I also wonder sometimes about best friends who play fight. Do they really know what the limits are? I know from having a brother when I was younger that we would often get carried away and it would become angry play. We would want to hurt each other. So it is a difficult one to manage. Interestingly, through her research, she found that girls actually engage in rough and tumble more than boys. And what I find fascinating about this is this idea that girls will engage in rough and tumble in an environment such as a nursery or a childminder setting or a school more freely because that environment is seen as more gender neutral and supportive of girls engaging in play that wouldn't usually be associated with boys. So in the outside world, unfortunately, we do live in a gendered society where girls engaging in rough and tumble is seen as less acceptable than boys engaging in that kind of play. Not all the time. And her research did find it was a very small number of girls in addition to the boys who would engage. So it was like a 52-48% split. But it's still quite an interesting statistic to know about. And it's worth us thinking, are we accepting that boys and girls should be allowed to engage in the same kind of risky play as each other? Or do we see certain risky play behaviours as more stereotypically boyish or girlish? And do we think it's appropriate to think like that? Number six is getting lost or disappearing. And it doesn't mean you take your children to the supermarket and say, good luck, everyone, off you go. It's about providing corners where children can go and take themselves away and feel like they're disconnected from the world around them. It is important that children need to feel as if they are out of sight. Now, for those of you who work in say, a school-based environment, the chances are you are in a purpose-built building that's always you know, intended to be a school. And so hopefully you would have good visibility in all your space, but some schools don't have that. Um, for those of you in a nursery environment, some of you might be in a purpose-built environment, but most of you will not. Um, and those of you who are childminders, hopefully you're in a room where you can see all the corners. Um, the point here really is, well, we want to allow children to take themselves away somewhere to feel like they're hidden, but we need to do it in a way that's safe. We need to know that they're going to be okay in those places. So we're not going to open up the gate to the yard and say, okay, off you go into a field or a garden where we just don't know what they're going to do. Instead, we allow them to go around a corner, perhaps out of sight, in a box, under a piece of fabric, in a den, in a tent. But we know what's going to happen there because we know that we've provided certain resources in the space. We know that there's nothing dangerous that could happen over there. And we may go and check up on them every 30 seconds or so. It's very common for people to have things like teepees and reading dens inside of their reading areas where children can hide. Um, and there's just a genuine sense of delight when children feel like they're disconnected from what's happening around them. They need to feel that sense of privacy. Number seven and eight, these are the ones that were added during the pandemic. Number seven is playing with impact. And it's something that I never really thought about before until I read her research. And the example I will give you is children riding bikes or scooters really fast and then at the very last second jumping off and allowing them to carry on into a target whether it's a wall a shutter a fence or even your own leg or the worst case scenario i've ever had is the a child jumped off a scooter and it carried on into another child and it hit them and they went flying and it was one of their very first days in nursery and i was devastated for this child um and it's it's just about sending something out into the world and seeing what can possibly happen 
with it. So it might not necessarily be a bike or a scooter. It could be throwing a stone against a shutter or a piece of glass. It could be throwing clods of earth against a floor and watching them disintegrate. There is an element of schematic play tied up with this one. And so you may see children throwing things and trying to engage in transformation scheme. But the chances are at some point you will see a group of children who will do this playing with impact. And number eight is my all-time favourite. It's vicarious play. In other words, it is learning through the eyes of someone else or watching to see what other people do. So a child watching another child climb up a tree and then fall out of it. Well, they're still learning by watching that child, learning how they are safer climbing up and learning what mistake they made in order to fall out. We as adults will do this quite a lot. If we're not quite certain about something, what we do is we look around a space. I'll give you an example. I was in a restaurant recently that had quite an unusual ordering system, and I wasn't really certain what to do. There were no instructions around. So what I did is I looked around to what other tables were doing. That is vicarious living. That is looking, you know, exploring by watching other people and learning by watching other people. Children who are transitioning, into spaces will often engage in vicarious play um, and they still get the same sense of thrill and delight as they would as if they were actually doing the other risky play behaviours themselves um, it just might be that they need a little bit more support or encouragement to take part in them. We would never force a child who is watching vicariously to engage in the risky play that other children are engaging in but what we might do is we might add a narrative into the play at the time to give them some understanding about what's happening and whether something's expected or not. A consideration for risky play around here needs to be, is this appropriate for my children? So a shared approach to risky play is essential, a shared understanding of what's acceptable and a very good basis or foundation of knowledge of your children themselves. If you don't know your children very well, you don't know what their limits are, it's very difficult for you to have limits in your mind about what you're willing children to do or you're willing to tolerate from other children. I'm going to leave you with an example here of a set of twins who came into a provision area of mine. It was their very first day as a boy and a girl and I was outside. Both the children ran outside to see me on their very first day to say hello. The little boy climbed up a climbing frame that we had. He climbed up to the very top of the ladder. He ran along the top, jumped off the end and off he went. Brilliant. His sister put her foot on the first rung of the ladder. She started to get quite nervous. She started to shake and she came down and she ran away. In terms of that static play equipment, what capacity it has for supporting future learning? Well, for her, you know, there's a lot of things we can do here, including developing her confidence to engage in that risky play of heights. However, what about him? What do I do to support him? Because the truth is he's already reached the limit for this static play equipment. I could attempt to create some kind of obstacle course with this static play equipment, but the truth is it's not super safe to add things onto a static piece of equipment because children, um, if something's flat and immovable, children will walk in it a certain way, but something that does move, it's a, it's a different kind of movement and we don't want to give children this idea of um, everything being safe, if that makes sense. So it's not super safe to do that for preschoolers. You need to allow them to connect things themselves. So for him, the real challenge, the real moving forwards is him accessing large scale equipment to create his own structures. And what he might do on a Monday is he might create something five foot tall. 
and that's it, that's great, he'll climb to the top and that's his limit. The next day he might create something five or six foot tall and that's his limit. Next day it might be seven, but suddenly when he gets to seven, it's really wobbly. And so the opportunities for learning here are he can learn to make it much stronger, much safer, but he can push his limits himself continuously. You, of course, will have a limit. You might have in your head, I don't want building above um, the height of the shutters or the rafters, or I don't want building above the height of me. Um, in which case, you can communicate that to him. But the whole point about risk is it's personal and it's intrinsic. And whether we like it or not, children will continue to push boundaries. And they need to be able to do that. There is an awful lot of colloquial conversation happening, um, or anecdotal conversation, sorry, between practitioners who say children need to fall in order to learn what their limits are. And I don't like to tell people that on training because, you know, you never want to say let children get hurt. Of course not. But what we need to make sure we're doing is not going the opposite direction and allowing children to be wrapped up in cotton wool. We need to allow children to push their own limits where they feel comfortable. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If you've got any questions, please do get in touch with me. This is part of the 12-week challenge in the Nursery Nook Network. If you've not joined, there's still time. Drop me a message on social media or check me out at nurserynook.co.uk. Next week, I'll have a guest for our podcast. So I hope you stay happy and healthy and take lots of risks in the next week. And I'll chat with you soon. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.